from AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Here's your host, Chip Lutz. Well, here it is. Time for Laugh Box, my favorite time of the week, and most certainly yours too. It is April. It is Humor Month. Guess what I'm doing this week? I'm going to the ATH conference. Yes, siree. Now, to celebrate Humor Month, one, I'm going to the conference, but two, I am posting a funny meme, a funny tip pretty much every day on Facebook, and I'm going to encourage you to do the same. Um, I encourage you, if you're not connected with me, connect with me. Let's, uh, let's enjoy Humor Month together. And to kick off Humor Month, I am talking to my good friend, Andrew Tarvin. He's been on the show before, but this week we are talking about his new book, Humor That Works. Quite possibly one of the best books I've read on the application of humor at work. So I want you to kick back and really enjoy this interview. I know you're going to like it. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This is Chip Lutz, the Unconventional Leader. And today, man, I am so excited because I get to talk to a, a really cool guy, somebody I really respect um, as a speaker, truthfully, one of, my, one of my favorite speakers. Anytime I'm at a, at a conference, I get to hear this guy speak. I always go to his sessions, sit there, listen, sit in awe. And naturally, I, I have an I have a inherent disdain for anybody that's younger and funnier and more successful than me, but I make the exception for my guest today. Andrew Tarvin, and we're going to be talking about his new book to kick off Humor Month. Did you like that? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, I, I, you know, it's, it's always pretty good when you start an introduction about, I normally would disdain this person, but, <laughs> but I, I really like him. I like this guy. So, hey, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've been a guest before, but for those people that haven't listened to your awesome interviews uh, previously, uh, if you could share a little bit about this this funny guy, Andrew Tarvin. Yeah, so by way of a little bit of background, uh, I will say that I am a nerd. Um, that's probably the most important thing to know about me. And for people wondering what type of nerd, the answer is yes. Right? Like all of them, computer science, uh, you know, sci-fi, Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, Star Trek, Starbucks, all of them. Um, but, uh, most specifically I'm an engineer as a kid, you know, I grew up always taking things apart and putting them back together again. Uh, even my name is like, I've, I've always been obsessed with efficiency and my name is Andrew. My full name is Andrew, but I often go by Drew because it's the most efficient form of my name. Uh, just one syllable. I like that. So, uh, yeah, I've always been an engineer and, uh, went to the Ohio state university, got a degree in computer science and engineering. And then after I graduated, I started working at Procter and Gamble as an IT project manager. And uh, it was at PNG that I realized while you can be efficient with things like computers, you can't really be efficient with people because they have emotions and feelings and they're irrational and selfish sometimes and all that kind of stuff. So instead, you have to be effective. And uh, I discovered kind of through improv and stand up in, in college that humor was a, a great way to be effective with people. Absolutely. Um, I think I like how you said that you, <laughs> the whole people portion of it. That, um, you know, something, some places would be a great place to work if I weren't for people. Mm -hmm. 
that would be, that's how I look at it anyway. But I, I like people. Now, I'm really excited to talk about your new book. Before we do, I'm just going to ask a random question just to get our conversation going. Sure. So, Mr. Tarvin, if you could go back in time, in the Wayback Machine, to any year in your life and relive it, what year would you go back to? Oh, go back to relive a year? Am I doing, is it to, to just experience it or is it to do something differently? Is it more of this was a really good year, so I want to experience it again, or this was a terrible year and I want to fix it, like do it better? You know what? Your choice. All right. Uh, well, you know, I've, I, I have a, an improv yes and mentality where, you know, I don't necessarily believe that uh, everything happens for a reason or that I've always made the best decisions, but I do feel like I can always build off a decision. So I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person. So I think I'm going to pick a relive year um, and do mostly the same. And I would say, uh, I guess it would be a 2000. I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit off here because I'm going to not do a calendar year, but I'm going to do March 1st, 2015 to March 1st, 2016, which was the year that I was a nomad. And uh, I went to all 50 states in a year. Uh, and that was quite the experience, a lot of fun, got a chance to, to see a lot of really cool people, meet new people, but also see people that I, I knew before and also get to see and experience the entire U.S. Uh, so I'd relive that, that experience. That is awesome. Yeah, and, and I loved following you during the course of that year, you know, uh, on Facebook and, and so forth. It was, it was cool to see what you were doing and your, subse you know, your subsequent book afterwards. You know, me, I've been to 48 of the 50 states. Um, but the two you would think, you know, like most people haven't been to would be like Hawaii and Alaska, which I've been to. Where haven't I been? New Hampshire and Rhode Island. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that sad? It's, that, it's sad. Well, yeah, I mean, cause Rhode Island, I mean, I guess it makes sense just geographically. It's the smallest state. So percentage wise, it would maybe be the hardest to get to. I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, your engineer roots run deep. Mm -hmm, right. Oh, that's great. Well, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about your new book, um, humor that works. I mean, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to go through it. Really great stuff. I've read a lot of humor books in my life. Um, yours, uh, was a little bit different for me in that, um, a lot of the humor books that I read, uh, I don't want to say they're fluffy, but they're, they are a little bit fluffier, but you know, yours has great stories, but also, you know, great content as far as, you know, references, exercises, applications, you know, things people can really use. So, you know, I just, you know, let's, why, why'd you put it together? Yeah. Well, so the, the book is really kind of the culmination of, you know, what I've been working on the last 10 years with my company, Humor That Works. So I started Humor That Works part-time while still at PNG in 2009. And so this is, you know, 10 years of experience of working with over 250 organizations on how to use humor to be more effective. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you, you recognize it as, you know, hopefully low fluff and high on actionable content, because that's my goal as an engineer is that people read the book and they feel like they can actually take action right away and start to, to improve the work. Cause that's what I love about humor. It's not that humor makes the workplace more fun. Um, that is a, a giant benefit to using humor. But the reason why I really like it is because it works because it gets you better results. And so that's what I wanted to have with the books. You're right. There's a plenty of other fantastic books out there about humor. Uh, but a lot of them have, you know, maybe it's just the theory of it, or maybe there's more of the background or kind of the, you know, um, the science behind it, all that. My book has a little bit of all of that, but the real goal is for people to be able to pick it up, read it, and then as they put it down, start to implement it right away. 
Right. And that's what I loved about it. I mean, it just that, you know, when I was going through, it was all things that you know, resonated with me, but also, you know, as a, as a manager, as a leader, uh, even as, you know, a lay person in a, in a workplace, these are all things that I could do. Um, yeah. So, you know, I love the way that you did it and I love the, the format. Now, you know, throughout the book, you've got some pretty cool um, um, graphs and pictures and stuff. But I was thinking when I was reading it, if you if you like wrote those out yourself, drew them yourself, because it was it what it was nice about it is a lot of times, you know, you've got a graph or you got something and it's all like pre-formatted and stuff like that. Yours was it was unique in that it, it looked like it was handwritten. Yeah, so they're they're hand drawn, and you're exactly right. Yeah, so I drew them. Uh, fun fact: the um, the text. So there's there's handwritten text in there. Um, I created my own font because I'm an engineer, rather than handwriting out every single <laughs> shut, one. Shut up! You did. Oh, that's <laughs> I did. I, there's there's a Drew Tarvin font uh, now that I created, so that's it's my handwriting, but I didn't have to write out every single character. But you know, and and that was for me. It was just a simple way because you know, as you know. When we're talking about humor in the workplace, it's not about making the workplace funny per se. It's about having a little bit more fun. It's, you know, part of humor's incongruity, doing things just a little bit differently. And so absolutely, I could have stock art in here. I could have, you know, Microsoft PowerPoint um, triangles and drawings and all that kind of thing. Or I was like, you know, just to make it a little bit more different, a little bit more visually interesting what if I hand draw these things? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's just a small example of how to do things differently to get people to pay attention a little bit more. Oh, and that, it, it certainly grabbed my attention. I love that. I was like, cause knowing you, I was like, I was like picturing you, like you, your tongue sticking out the side of your mouth, you know, with your pencil, like drawing those out. And I was like, Oh, that's okay. Maybe I got too much of a visual. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> as long as you just, just make it a little bit nerdier and, and put it as a, a surface pen on a surface pro because I'm an engineer and I'm, I'm, you know, a digital, um, you know, of the digital generation, but yeah, that's exactly what it was, was like. I did it on planes and in hotels and as I was traveling around and uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun. So I'm glad that you, uh, you pointed out and same thing on the, the cover. So the cover is a picture of a hand drawn smiley, which is me. And then, uh, a person behind it, um, uh, drawing it. And that also is a picture of me. Is it uh, really? Yeah. That's cool. yeah, some people are like, is it stock art? And I was like, well, you know what? No, it's, it's, it's gotta be me. I gotta be the one on the cover. Also, I had to make sure that it was left-handed cause I am left-handed. Like it's small details like that, that I, you know, nerd out about. Right. Uh, small details. Cause like, I remember for your last book, when you did a book launch, you actually launched the book, which I thought was, you know, so creative and so, so awesome. Um, I, yeah. I, so for, yeah, for, for what he means by physically. So I literally launched the book because I shot it out of a catapult, uh, which is, you know, I love wordplay and anytime you can physicalize, you know, puns, uh, I'm all for it. So in putting the book together, I, cause I know that there are some things that, you know, like for the books that I put together, some things are so easy to, to write out and some things take a little more, I don't say a little more work, but a little bit deeper uh, thought whether you, anything within the book that was like, Hey, this was like so natural for me to put down a paper or was it all natural? No. So it was, I'll tell you that this, this book has been in various forms for the last probably five, maybe six years. Mm -hmm. And the first part I always kind of knew, cause that's kind of the what and why of humor. And that's what I've been, you know, speaking on more and more um, when I first started was why is humor value valuable in the workplace? So the first chapter is humanity's desperate need for humor and the statistics, the statistics, I don't even know that's <laughs> statistics uh, and the studies 
that's that, that portmanteau um, of those two words. Uh, mm. But the statistics and studies of why, you know, humor is needed, the fact that 83% of Americans are stressed out at work and 55% are unsatisfied with their jobs and on and on and on. So that flowing into why humor is beneficial. So uh, with humor that works, we, works, we talk about the 30 business benefits of using humor at work as an individual and the 10 benefits that an organization gains when they have a culture of humor in the workplace. Um, and the next chapter is kind of uh, understanding humor that, you know, humor is more broad than comedy. And the next chapter is kind of the skill of humor and what you need to be able to learn it. And that if it is a skill, it means it can be learned by anyone. So those four chapters I kind of had set in my my head and have written about in the past and so it was the second half that it took me years to kind of figure out and refine because I wanted to be okay how do you do the how mm -hmm. how do you take something nebulous like humor and actually leave people a strategy so that they feel like they can actually implement it so mm -hmm. that it's not just well okay it's a great in theory but now how do I actually go and do it and so the the last few chapters the humor across each one of the the business skills that I talk about uh, took a little while to to figure out, but once I had that structure and understanding, it it you know finally clicked, and that came through all the workshops that we've done with over 200 organizations that practice and repetition and all that. So it's it's things that have actually worked within organizations. Right. You brought up a really good point on you know the organizational piece that you know, and I like on the book. You know, when you're at the beginning, uh, when you talked about how with the, the section from the, you know, your conversation with your editor on, um, you know, most people look at humor as a nice to have, but, you know, I agree that it really is a need to have, you know, what do you think is some of the, I don't know, like phobias organizations have about implementing, you know, like humor in a workplace? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's, there's two kind of competing things, I think, that tend to, um, come up when, when people think about humor. One is that we have this kind of older, archaic thinking that work has to feel like work. Right. That, you know, from the, the olden days, like, yeah, if you're out in a farm tilling away, maybe it's not the most exciting, but you're not, you're not tilling away because you're looking for work fulfillment. You're tilling away in the field because if you don't create food, if you don't bring to harvest crops, then you die of starvation. Um, and so we have that old mentality. And then even in the Industrial Revolution, where everything was just about how efficient could we be? How much can we make this factory run? Okay, maybe that makes a little bit more sense. But now in today's knowledge economy, where our emotions, emotions impact our ability to get work done, like if you go into the workplace stressed out because of something at home, you know that your workday is not going to be as productive than as if you are well rested and you're energized and you're engaged in your work. And so we just haven't made the, the mental shift to say that one, work doesn't have to feel like work, that if we are enjoying what we do, we tend to do it better and we will do it for longer. Mm -hmm. um, so just because we're having fun doesn't mean that we don't take our work seriously. So part of it is a mental shift, mm -hmm. um, which you are seeing in, in certainly you know, younger generations. Millennials were the first generation to include fun as a core value of what they're seeking in the workplace. So it is evolving over time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the second reason I think why it's not necessarily a culture of it is that people are, are afraid of, of using it inappropriately. And, you know, humor is a tool, which means that, yes, it can be used, you know, so in the, the book, I share a metaphor of a screwdriver, where a screwdriver is a, a really effective tool, it can help to put things together, it can also be used to take things apart. Um, it usually involves a little bit of a twist, but you could also stab someone with the screwdriver. Right? <laughs> like, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to use it for good. Um, and so you just have to understand what are the components of using humor appropriately in the workplace for it to be a positive tool.
Yeah, I've seen that too. Where well, the the fear factor for um, a lot of people, you know, one they uh, they don't want to use it appropriate inappropriately, or um, they just have like the whole mindset of well, I'm not funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know people have to understand that it, that humor is a skill, and if it's a skill, it means it can be learned. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, you know, I haven't, um, you know, some people just grow up funny. And the reality is that they probably grew up in a funny environment. Maybe they had a parent or uh, a friend or a loved one who was a great storyteller and they happen to learn their storytelling from that and they never realized they were picking it up. Right. But for me, I've, you know, I've done over a thousand shows as a stand-up and improv comedian. And when I first started out, I was terrible like most people are when they're first starting out with that. And so as a process of learning it over time and the practice and repetition is what helps you to improve. Absolutely. Um, I, I love the story that you share, you know, within the book about you going back to your high school reunion and sharing with people that fact about how many stand-up shows that you've done. And they just looked at you like, well, you're not funny. Yeah. That, was, that, that, was, that was a great story. Yeah. It's a, and it, I mean, people you have to realize that, yeah, who we are in high school, who we are in elementary school, who we are, even, you know, if you're 45 or whatever, it doesn't mean that you can't change, right? We, uh, as humans, are constantly learning, constant, constantly growing. And there's a great, I think there's a web comic, um, and I don't remember, I wish I remember who, who wrote it or created it, but it was basically saying that a lot of people suggest that it takes about seven years to, to become a master at something. Mm-hmm. Not like the world's greatest, but also like much more than um, an amateur. To become a master, it takes seven years. So that means that any time in your life, you could start something completely brand new that you've never done before and in seven years get to a mastery level of it. Right. And, you know, that's, that's kind of that constant growth, that constant learning. And that's one of the things that I think is, is fun a lot of times that I'll talk about in my um, – programs is I'll ask the audience like who here is is constantly learning like and everyone raises their hand and I'm like is anyone's brain full anyone done (laughs) um and they're like no right and so my my point of that is that we're constantly learning that we have to constantly be changing but you know for many people especially if they've been in the workplace for a little while if they want to get better results it's not so much changing what they do because my my belief is that you know and this is what i talk about at the beginning of the book is that there's really only five skills of work no matter who you are what you do what your assignment your role your industry whatever you basically do five things at work first you have to be able to execute mm-hmm. you have to be able to get stuff done uh two you have to be able to think like solve problems and think strategically three you have to be able to communicate right? Actually talk uh, with other people and, and clarify your ideas, uh, articulate, you know, the, the intelligence that you have. Four, you have to be able to connect. Uh, that's where the human component comes into play. That's emotion, uh, like emotional intelligence and empathy. And then five, you have to be able to lead. You have to be able to influence people towards some type of goal. No right. matter who you are, what you do, it's those five things. Um, and we, uh, we spend a lot of times working on those five things. Like we go to school and we learn how to do a job or we get on the job training and, and we're really focusing on those five skills, but no one ever really teaches us how to enjoy what we do. And the premise of the book is that the missing skill is humor. Right. So, uh, it, you know, humor isn't what we do. It's not replacing the work that you do, but it, rather it's changing how you do your work. And I would think that you, your overall mindset in, you know, the, the process. Would that be 
true are you yeah, still yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry I, I thought i didn't know i didn't realize that was the question i was like yeah it's the overall mindset i should yeah. i should have i should have like lifted the end uh, more like a process yeah there we go i need i needed that i need that upward inflection uh not the downward inflection of a statement sorry uh, about I was that. Just, no 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 i was leaving a dramatic pause for the audience in fact actually that's i mean you know that's a, a funny example one of the things that i we talk about is like incongruity and there's audio or oral um, uh, incongruity, and, and sometimes simply leaving a pause. Mm-hmm. I can bet there's probably there's probably at least one person listening to this podcast that are driving along or doing the dishes or whatever, and they're kind of starting to zone out maybe just a little bit, or they got distracted by something. But that pause that we're going to now say is intentional, or at least that we're building off of, uh, they're probably like, wait, what's going on? And now they're paying attention, right? Sometimes just simple incongruity like that can kind of tweaks people's uh, uh, attention. But uh, to answer your question or statement, um, yeah, it is, it's very much a mindset. It's, it's how you see the world. And it's a mindset that anyone can, can learn and start to adopt. That was a great way to yes and my whole mistake in that question. That was a great way to you know, reformat that. That was awesome. Um, now, I, I liked uh, 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 all the sections, but when I was reading the section on leadership, I, I loved how you started off um, talking about, you know, the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I just thought it was, uh, uh, I've, I've been in that kind of situation. So it really resonated with me. Yeah, it's, it's one, of the, one of the really cool stories I, I've found about Lincoln. Because there's tremendous, you know, stories about Lincoln and his use of humor. Um, you know, like he was uh, a pretty well-known one as he was in a debate and uh, his, the person he was debating with confused him of being a two-faced liar. And uh, Lincoln's response was, if I was two-faced, do you really think I'd be wearing this one? Mm-hmm. Uh, right, giving a little bit of self-deprecating humor about the situation. So there's a lot of great examples of the wit and humor of Lincoln. But my favorite story of Lincoln is uh, during the Civil War, about the height of the Civil War, he called together all of his cabinet members for a meeting. And as all the, the war cabinet members were coming in, he read to them a, a, a humor piece from Artemis Ward. And so he reads through the whole thing. Lincoln laughs afterwards. No one else in the room does. They're all uh, probably just like looking at him like what is going on right uh so lincoln read another humor piece he assumed that they didn't get the piece so he read another yet another one again lincoln laughs no one else does uh and so after reading the second one he looks at all of his his cabinet members and he says uh gentlemen why don't you laugh with the fearful strain that is upon me night and day if i did not laugh i should die and you need this medicine as much as i do right and to me, the coolest part of that story, because that's already kind of an interesting story and in talking about, again, you know, the idea that even though it was something, you know, a serious time doesn't mean that um, we can't use a little bit of humor to, to connect to the, the humanity that we have. But the coolest part of that story is that the reason why he called that meeting together, the, the second thing that he read that day was the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I think is, you know, to, to say that humor was an okay introduction into perhaps one of the most important documents in this country's history or in the United States' history since, you know, the Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence is, again, it speaks to Lincoln recognizes that just because something is serious doesn't mean that everything around it has to be done seriously. And that's what I, kind of the story that I share with organizations when they think that their humor, their, their workplace is too serious for humor. The reality is if what you're doing is serious or if what you're doing is important, 
um, you would do anything that you could that's going to be more effective with people. And, and anytime you're working with people, like assuming that you're not working only with robots, if you're working with people, then humor is going to be something that can be effective in certain situations. Now, that's not to say every situation use humor. Like I don't want, if I'm going in for heart surgery, I don't want like my heart surgeon to take out my heart and like put it into like a, um, balloon animal or something like that Spr or sprinkle it with uh, glitter sprinkle right yes yeah, glitter. glitter right <laughs> yeah or play it like it's a sousaphone or something um but i would want him to you know i'd want uh, him or her to have a you know maybe good bedside manner or mm. to have some humorous material in the waiting room or have comedy on the tv when i'm coming out of surgery because we know that can help with pain relief and all that kind of stuff like so it doesn't mean that everything that you're going to do is going to have humor but you can certainly have humor around even more serious topics right what i think is interesting is that you know looking at different vocations and you know say like industries there are some that usually seem a little more serious to me and certainly like engineering has always seemed pretty serious to me so it's always kind of interesting to me to think of you being an engineer but you know having such an appreciation and affinity for you know humor and uh, joy in the workplace and we'll be right back with that interview with drew but right now it is time for fun facts I had trouble getting that out of my mouth there for a minute and this week's fun fact is a little bit about Humor Month, a little bit of history on Humor Month. The National Humor Month was founded in 1976 by comedian and best-selling author Larry Wilde, who was the director of the Carmel Institute of Humor. He turned that over to Steve Wilson here a few years ago, and you can get a lot more information on Humor Month, how to celebrate Humor Month, tools, tips, tricks, things you can do at humormonth.com. So get involved, share your joy. Now, let's get back to Drew. Yeah, well, and it's because, like, as engineers, we tend to be really good with computers, mm -hmm. not so good with people. Mm -hmm. And humor is a great way to to be better with people. Like, it can be, in a way, like, you know, I used to do a program, and I do it every now and then, on programming humans. And so it's like, okay, how do we understand what what's motivation for people? And it's it's a simple kind of question that I've started to, to ask some of my audiences or started some of my one-on-one -on -one clients is a simple question of, and you can answer this as well, um, would you rather do something that is fun or not fun? Always fun. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Most people are going to say that they would rather do something fun. So if you made your work a little bit more fun, or if you say, say you're an engineer and you have to have a meeting with someone, if you made that meeting a little bit more fun for them, meaning they would be more likely to want to come to it or agree to what you said or buy your product or whatever, then you are going to be more effective. You're going to program them a little bit more to, to like you a little bit more, to build that rapport. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as engineers, I think we can see humor as a problem-solving tool. And the, the fun part, I, the reason why I think I, I enjoy humor so much is that a lot of times creating humor is like a logic problem. It's like figuring out, okay, how do these components come together for a punchline? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's because um, I've sat through your session on doing that, and I'm I, I'm always mesmerized. Like for me, uh, sometimes I I'm not really good at the dissection, 
mm-hmm. of humor and uh, but I'll think something that's funny and then I will create the story that goes along with it you know or think of like you know what's the build up for this so this you know part of the story is the punchline um but I don't have as good a process as you do I'm all you know like I love you know sitting through your sessions and and listening to you know how you do that logically yeah, well, and, and like you said, that's the, the basics, you know, the start of the, the process anyway, because if we think about, you know, the way that I kind of frame the skill of humor is that it is sense of humor plus skill of humor plus agency with humor. So sense of humor is simply what you find interesting or funny. Like you just said, you, you hear something that's interesting or something that makes you go, huh, all right, that's a little bit different or makes you laugh. Mm-hmm. So that's your sense of humor. That's your perspective, your point of view. And then your um, skill of humor, your, your ability to humor is really about taking that one concept and then just what you said of like, what's the story around it? How do I make that the punchline or how, I, how do I tell a story or what information does the audience need to know from a content perspective? What creates the right setup so that when I give this punchline, it creates laughter. And that's kind of the logic problem piece to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, with the ability to humor also comes the, you know, kind of delivery, things like timing and um, you know, kind of the ending on a downward inflection if you need to, or an upward inflection if you need to, and like mm-hmm. having the right pause and all that, um, that, that comes with the delivery as well as part of the ability and that you gain from, from practice and repetition. And then the final piece, um, the piece that's maybe missing, say in a comedy club is agency with humor. And that is using humor for specific results. Is it to execute faster? Is it to think smarter? Each one of the the skills that we talk about, that's the second half of the book is here's how you use humor for execution. Here's how you use humor for each one of those skills uh, that I talked about. But you're like, you're basically kind of even at that, that structure there and what you were talking about. So, well, thank you. Um, I still am. I love your process. Anyway, um, going back to what you just said on, you know, some of the, the skill uh, sections of it in within organizations, what, uh, what's the appropriateness test for, I mean, if people are like, if that, that fear section you know, portion is there for somebody and they're like, I don't know how this is going to work. You know, um, what do they go through? I mean, how do they, they run it by HR first? I mean, what's, what's the, what's the process? Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple that you can kind of go through. I think the, you know, in the high level understanding the four styles of humor um, from Rod A. Martin uh, is very helpful. So affiliative, self-enhancing, self-defeating and um, aggressive as uh, a number of kind of humorous kind of speak about that. Understanding those distinctions, I think can be helpful. Um, Understanding what I talk about in terms of effective humor in the workplace of understanding your humor map. So your map being your medium, your audience, and your purpose, um, and the purpose being a big one, like whereas what's your purpose for saying that joke? Is it to build rapport with someone or is it to get them to pay attention? Because the humor that you're going to use for different goals is going gonna, is gonna to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, you know, the biggest one is uh, the easiest way to kind of think about it is the newspaper rule right? Which is, would you be comfortable with whatever it is that you said or did showing up in the front page of the, of your hometown newspaper for, you know, your coworkers to read or your boss to read or your mom to read or your parakeet to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there's anything that you're like, ah, I don't know if I'd want the entire organization to hear this, you know, slightly <laughs> racy joke that I just shared, right. probably, you know, a good sign to say it's probably not appropriate for the workplace. Right. That took me a long time to, I don't want to say a long time to, um, 
learn because uh, that used to be where my mouth would just say things before I really thought it out. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. yeah, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at that. Yeah, and you'll over time you'll learn your audience, right? That's the the A piece of the map is is the audience is really important. You'll under you'll you start to recognize that you know you and I have gotten to know each other pretty well. So the level of jokes that we can share back and forth is probably different than you know if you're meeting uh, a CEO for the first time tomorrow. Right. Uh, you know, it's like it's your your relationship to the individuals has a big impact on humor. In fact, I was just talking with someone. Recently, and she was doing her dissertation on humor in the interview process, and they were looking at gender differences between the uh, whether it's a man using humor or a woman using humor. Mm-hmm. And she said that the the biggest results actually wasn't whether or not the interviewer, the person using the humor, was a man or a woman, but whether the person receiving the humor mm-hmm. was there a man or a woman. And it kind of changed a little bit their perception. So a lot of times, it's less about the humor kind of user and more about the humor recipient. Uh, and that's that where, is, as a user, you have to be effective in understanding who your audience is. That's fascinating. That is exciting. Uh, I, I really wouldn't think that the, the whole gender thing would you know, be a factor, uh, but that's interesting that somebody chose that specific of a thing uh, for their dissertation that you know on humor in the interview process. Um, God, I have, you're lucky to have found that person. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it just kind of speaks to the idea mm-hmm. that there's a lot of factors that go into play in terms of how, whether or not humor works, right? We know from, you know, as a stand-up comedian, I know I, c- I could do one set of jokes in one club on one night and it crush and be amazing and people love it. And then the very next night do the exact same set of jokes, but it's a different audience and it not, you know, and it be crickets right. and it could be, you know, and it's, and it's, not necessarily my performance set has changed, but more the audience has changed and what right. they what they perceive and everything. And who we are is a little bit of an impact in terms of how effective our humor is, right? right. That's why um, self-defeating humor, self-deprecating humor can be great if you're in a high-status position. But if you are not seen in a high-status position because you're brand new to the organization or because the recipient has some type of bias – um, then self-defeating humor uh, can be a negative. It can be seen as, you know, as a pity party or uh, low self-esteem. And so out who we are and who the audience is does play an important role in using humor. Yeah, and I've been there as a speaker as well, where, you know, I will, um, I've never done the, the stand-up thing, but as a speaker, like I'll have, you know, a, a great, you know, bit, it, rocks one time and the next day, you know, I'll go to speak. And then like you said, it's crickets. And I'm like, wow, you know, sit back. What are the dynamics at play? Did I deliver it differently? Um, and, and some of it just is the fact of the aesthetics of, you know, the, you know, the room, uh, the, the people that were there. Uh, sometimes it actually is me. Um, so, yeah. so that's, um, yeah. I mean, well, and that's where sometimes like, like the, a fraction of a longer pause makes all the difference or there's, um, uh, in, in my presentation, there's this great picture of um, it's in it's in a dentist's office somewhere that someone to take a picture of. And it's Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the left, it's the normal picture of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. And then on the right, it's Gollum with his teeth fixed, where he's like nice, pearly white teeth. Um, and it's like a painting of both of them to say, you know, and for me, I think it's it's a great kind of very quickly articulates what the dentist's office does. It takes, you know, bad teeth that look, teeth that look terrible, uh, makes them look good. Mm. And I've realized that a small thing of like, I have to set up to the audience before I show them the picture, 
like, hey, or, you know, as I'm giving this example of using humor, or there's this example here in a dentist's office, and then boom, the picture, big laughter. If I don't say this is in a dentist's office, then there's a lot more confusion than like, if I say, oh, this is funny, and then just show it, it's not nearly as funny to the audience. So sometimes it's a small piece of information that's set up, or sometimes it's how long you wait um, for a pause. One of the things that you have to learn is um, a comedian is not to step on your laughter. Because right. as you do jokes more and more, you know, oh, it's funny for this reason. This is a punchline. But the audience hearing it for the first time, they're processing. They're making these connections. And so it takes them a little bit longer to get why something is funny. And then if they're getting ready to start to laugh, but then you start talking, mm-hmm. they'll suppress that laughter so that they can hear what you're saying. And right. so you're stepping on your laughter. And so sometimes it's <laughs> the delivery piece of it. And this is where the practice and repetitions really help. And so what we say in our programs is that, you know, there is an art and science to humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can teach you the science. And then in our programs, we give you a chance to practice the art of it, you know, get the reps of it in. But ultimately, you know, you have to get quote unquote stage time. And that could be getting on a stand up stage. It could be taking an improv class, which I highly recommend for a lot of people. Uh, or it could be simply testing your material more, whether that's in conversation or creating a Facebook group of friends where you share mm-hmm. things or, you know, what I do is I tweet almost every single day and it's a way to force myself to get ideas out in a concise form. And then I can look at what, what do people comment on or what are the ones that people like or retweet? And that's feedback for me, whether something is good or bad. Right. Um, I love that, that facet of um, forcing yourself and the practice of things. You know, like, because if I have a story idea, I will test it out uh, with anybody that I come in contact with, just to kind of vet out some of the 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 bugs and you know, see how things work. If it's even worth it, if nobody laughs, it's like okay, that's a that's a dud. <clears throat> and there are some stories that I would I wish I could share from the platform, but I know I never can, so I just keep them to myself and share them with my my really really close friends. Anyway, now I want everybody to buy this book because like I said, I think that is one of the best books on um, uh, humor in the workplace that I have ever, I've ever read. Um, so uh, as a teaser, could you um, give us a couple things people could do to, uh, you know, from the book that uh, they might be able to do to create a little more play, a little more humor in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there are, so the book, uh, as mentioned, structure, the, the second half of it is, how to use humor across each one of those skills um, mm-hmm. that we talked about. And so each each skill, so execution being a skill, thinking being a skill, et cetera, uh, the book talks about two principles for each one in terms of what makes them good. So how can you be efficient at execution or how can you have effective execution? Uh, and then each one of those principles has a humor strategy tied to them. So for example, to execute more effectively, uh, humor strategy of rebooting stress. And so to reboot stress, there's a couple of things you can do. Uh, so for example, you can reject the things you hate doing. So one of the easiest ways to avoid stress is just not do things that are stressful to you. Um, <laughs> so now, simple. Yeah, so simple. But <laughs> a lot of times people forget it. And, right. um, you know, and, and I recognize that it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. But for example, I would wake up every morning and, and read like a newsletter or read the newspaper or, you know, check news headlines. And it would stress me out. Because uh, we live in stressful times and you may, you know, if you read a story that raises your blood pressure that disagrees with what you're thinking about, can be a stressful start to the day and you carry that with you. And so, you know, I still want to be informed about what's going on in the world. So I still read the news, but I've decided, okay, I'm not going to do that in the morning, right? So I've rejected that stress trigger early on. So you can think about things like that or you can try to delegate things if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Also, you can reframe the things you can't change. So if you know that you have to do something every single day, reframe it. Think about, okay, how do I make this, turn this into a positive, either by understanding why I have to do it or maybe turning it into a game. Right. Um, we can reboot stress by relieving stress. So sometimes we can't avoid the stressful experience, but right after, let's say we have a meeting every Monday and it always causes us a little bit of stress. Well, we can be intentional that immediately after that meeting, we do something to relieve stress. We do something that gets us to laugh. Right. Something that, you know, whether that's watching a comedy video or going for a walk or chatting with a friend or something like that. And then finally, we can recharge. This is where, you know, vacations and weekends are helpful, but we can also recharge throughout the day. We can take intentional breaks just to kind of reboot our batteries. And so that's one strategy of rebooting stress so that we can be more effective at executing so that we avoid things like burnout and uh, getting stressed out and getting sick and all of the, um, you know, the things that go along with being too stressed at work. Absolutely. Good uh, stuff. Great. Yeah, and then the, the last strategy that I'll, I'll share, the, the last kind of bonus strategy that's there, um, the, the kind of high arching one, is, uh, is I just encourage people to think one smile per hour. You know, what is one thing that they can do each hour of the day that brings a smile to their face or the face of someone else? And that starts to develop your humor habit. And as you build it into the habit, you'll find your own natural ways for, you know, what your natural skill set is and your way of working that uh, make make your work a little bit more fun. Beautiful. That is good stuff. I like, I like the bringing one smile to somebody else because that in and of itself would make me smile, you know, being able to make somebody else smile. So that's a great strategy. Um, so if after today, I'm out, let's put it like this, where do people connect with you and you know, where do they get the book? Yeah. So the, the book is available on Amazon on print and uh, printing Kindle. Um, so if you just search humor in the workplace or humor that works, uh, you'll find it or Andrew Tarvin, you'll find it, uh, or you can just go to humorthatworks.com. Information is kind of available there about it. If they want more humor resources, if you're like, Hey, interesting idea, but I don't know that I want to buy your book. Uh, great. We have tons of free resources on humorthatworks.com. You can sign up for a free newsletter. Uh, you can get more information on what we do there. If you're like interested in kind of the comedy and things that I create or the speaking that I do, that's drewtarvin.com or you can follow me on social media. If you're like, yes, I want more puns in my life, then follow me at drewtarvin, D-R-E-W-T-A-R-V-I-N on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube. I don't know if I still have a MySpace page. Um, but, uh, all the, all social media that is just Drew Tarvin is all, all kind of the same. And so you can follow me there. That's awesome. Um, and I would uh, tell my listeners, uh, check out Drew's videos. Uh, honestly, you know, a masterful speaker and super, super funny. Uh, you'll get a lot from, you know, just watch him and listen to, uh, to this, this guy do his thing. I mean, I, I love, I love, it's, I sound like I got a man crush, but anyway, um, I have an engineer crush. Hey, so I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. I mean, I, I said, I, I enjoy uh, what you do and um, I enjoy you as a person. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Hopefully it was uh, valuable for the listeners. If there's any questions that they have, they can reach me at drew at drewtarvin.com. Always more than happy to chat with folks. Now, if we were really at a bar drinking, um, I would give you some kind of drunk there, but since we're not, I'm going to ask you a few random questions for my overstuff. Would you rather book? Great. And Mr. Tarvin, are you game? Yes, absolutely. All right. Three questions and I will apologize in advance because I don't know where the book's going to open to. Mm -hmm. All right. First question. Would you rather have your breath smell like a bad fart or have your laugh sound like a fart? 
uh, laughs sound like a fart. I would too. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I, only going to create more laughter. Like if you go to a comedy club, you start laughing, and it sounds like a fart. That's going to make other people laugh as well. This, this, this is true. Um, I was just laughing, thinking about that. All right. Would you rather find out that while drunk the night before, you flashed the elderly woman who lives next door, or that you pounded the hell out of your own car with a hammer? Um, I would rather flash. I think let's why not? Why not give people? I'm a comedian. I, I'm happy to give someone a show. <laughs> there we go. Last question. Would you rather immerse your naked body in a bathtub of cockroaches or dive headfirst into a pool of chewing tobacco spit? Oh my God, that's terrible. Both that is terrible. Are, <laughs> both both are so awful. awful. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I have to go cockroaches because chewing tobaccos that's disgusting (laughs) i was like as soon as you read the first one i was like there's no way i'm picking the first one and then it got worse um so i guess i mean i i live in new york so i'm probably around more cockroaches than i realize so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go (laughs) probably well thank you again my friend for spending some time with me i really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me What did I tell you? Great stuff from my good buddy, Andrew Tarvin. I'm going to encourage you to go to his website, check him out. Go to his YouTube channel, check him out. Watch his videos. But most importantly, I'm going to tell you, you need to get this book. I've had the chance to read it, and like I said before, it is the best book that I have read on how to apply humor in the workplace. And that's what we're all about, is the application of humor. I also encourage you to go to our website, aath.org. Check us out. And if you got something you want to hear on the show, email me at chipunconventionalleader.com. I would love to hear from you. So until next time, this is Chip Lutz saying, we'll keep the laugh on for you. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. LaughBox is made possible by a grant from the National Speakers Foundation and is brought to you by AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Find out more at aath.org. Be sure to review LaughBox on iTunes. For show notes and more information about today's conversation, visit laughbox.aath.org.